Welcome to the Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. Richard Weisler is an adjunct associate professor of psychiatry at Duke University and an adjunct professor of psychiatry at the University of North Carolina School of Medicine in Chapel Hill. He also has a private practice of psychiatry. Over the years, he has contributed significantly to so many areas of of psychiatry. However, he recently was part of a project to address the growing problem of unintentional drug poisoning deaths in our country. The scope of this problem is daunting. If this death rate continues, that within the next 10 years, as many Americans will die from such deaths as now live in a city the size of Newark, New Jersey. Dr. Weisler, thank you for talking to us. Abby, thank you for having me. Let's start with a basic definition. Why is the term unintentional drug poisoning death being used rather than the more common term of just a simple drug overdose? I think this is a terminology that the Centers for Disease Control came up with. To include people, again, when a medical examiner tries to evaluate how did somebody die, they try to look for whether or not there was suicidal intent. If they can find any intent at all, then it is typically called suicide, or perhaps in another category called undetermined, where they really can't decide was it unintentional. But if the person accidentally taking too much of a medication, not knowing how to use the medication properly, in interaction perhaps, like we'll talk about in benzodiazepines, where by themselves they don't really cause a whole lot of deaths, but when mixed with other drugs, the death rate's high, then that's where the unintentional poisoning death came in. It's not a perfect system, and I'm certain that there are certain cases maybe suicides, and there may be some cases that medical examiners will rule as suicides that perhaps really unintentional, and it's hard to tease out. It's a very difficult job on the part of these medical examiners. Well, obviously, the CDC and other agencies gather statistics about these deaths, and if you look at the numbers, they are just skyrocketing. What are they finding? What are the numbers looking like? What's happened is really since over the last 15 years, say, the numbers of unintentional poisoning deaths really have skyrocketed, and I would encourage listeners to do a search of the CDC database. In fact, my co-author in the work we've been doing is Lynn Palazzi, and Lynn is the head of the Unintentional Injury Bench for the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and he's been working on this project for a long time. As you mentioned, an almost skyrocketing kind of number, and that Medscape piece that we did as well has a number of graphs that include national data. What you see is that in a lot of states now, the number of deaths by unintentional poisoning have actually passed motor vehicle accident deaths. And motor vehicle accident deaths have been the leading cause of unintentional injuries for 85 years. It's a long time. A long time. And CDC runs about three, four years behind. And we're just now getting 2007 data that they're coming out with because they want to verify was it a suicide, was it an accident, was it undetermined, put it in the right category best they can. In the country as a whole, there are around 33,000 suicides a year. Again, those are the ones determined by medical examiners to be intentional deaths. In a number of states, these unintentional poisoning injury deaths have passed suicides too. But when you put them together, it becomes a really huge number. And in fact, if you include the undetermined cases, it increases the numbers of whether you're talking about suicides or unintentional poisoning by about another 8 to 10%. So it's a huge number. As you mentioned, it's like losing whole cities in 10 years if it keeps it up. It's a major public health problem for certain. And in Florida in particular, Florida uh, looks like it may be almost an epicenter for the availability of these prescription-controlled drugs. And by some reports, there may be as many as seven deaths a day in the state of Florida 
that I've read. And when you look at the data for prescribing, the number one prescribed drug in the country generically using the Verisan data in 2008 was actually hydrocodone. And Verisan, for people who don't know, is one of the organizations that monitors these things. Verisan does monitor all prescriptions, and again, the next closest drug was almost prescribed half as frequently, and that would be lisinopril. But for hydrocodone being number one, in other words, one prescription for every two people roughly in the country, adults. And then oxycodone, and I was doing grand rounds last week in the University of Cincinnati. In Ohio, again, one prescription of hydrocodone for every two people roughly, and one for oxycodone for every four and a half people in the state. And that's a lot of prescriptions. So nationally, when they looked at the data, in some studies as well. I've seen in September of 2009 in Florida a report that showed that 33 of the top 50 dispensing practitioners of oxycodone nationwide were actually located in Broward County. Another 24 were also high up there. So 49 of the 50 top oxycodone dispensing practitioners were in Florida. It's a major problem in Florida, but also elsewhere. We know that we need to, as physicians, alleviate and treat pain and how to deal with that. But what seems to have changed is that a mindset to start using these kind of compounds for things other than more severe pain-related, cancer-related death. Finding that balance is really where the struggle is for healthcare and how do you do it correctly. The term pharmacoepidemic has actually been coined to address this issue. Exactly. CDC considers this now a national epidemic. Now, there are a few states that don't have as much of a problem Florida, though, it really is a very severe problem, and you can look at trend lines. In North Carolina, for example, in 1998, there were 279, if I remember correctly, unintentional poisoning deaths. By 2008, 10 years later, there were over a 1,000 unintentional poisoning deaths. And that's actually what got me started looking at this. I've been giving a grand rounds of suicidality, and so I asked for data from the state how people died by suicide. I mean, were hangings, guns, poisonings. And when I saw the data, I was blown away because I thought I was pretty up to date, but I had missed in many ways this epidemic of what was happening with my patients. And I say my patients, I look at everybody's patients, but society in terms of what was going on. And it really is a change that's been dramatic over the last decade in particular. The obvious question, therefore, is why? Why is this happening? Is this simply a reflection of a larger substance abuse problem that perhaps never got the attention that it is now getting? Where is this coming from? Do you have any sense of that? I mean, I have some some sense, but uh, clearly, as I mentioned, a lot of it is a philosophical change that occurred in the late 90s about how do we treat pain. You know, these the pain medications, particularly some of the ones that are being abused, are really very, very potent drugs. So if you look at, for example, fentanyl, fentanyl has a potency 80 to 100 times stronger than morphine. And then you have compounds like the oxycodone, hydrocodone compounds, a bunch of the other ones, and we'll talk about some of them in a minute. But they all are, are very, very potent drugs. And it's spread down actually to the high schools around the country. So each year, there's a study done by the University of Michigan called Monitoring Our Future, basically. In that study, they do a survey of, of high schools. And if I'm not mistaken, the last survey, 10%, just slightly less than 10% of the high school students admitted misusing in their senior year opiates. 
about 5% were on oxycodone, and 1% were actually on heroin. But the prescription drugs is a belief on the part of people who are abusing, they must be safe because they're approved drugs. What people don't realize is that when you take them incorrectly or doctors don't understand, or just as importantly, doctors are doing the right thing, but they don't know what their patients are taking, there can be adverse interactions. And it's really shocking. You're hopefully in Florida going to get a prescription drug monitoring program in place in the next year. We've had it in North Carolina, and it allows us to sign on to the web and look at all the scheduled prescriptions that our patients have gotten from any provider in any pharmacy in the state. Now, it doesn't help you, for example, like where I was in Ohio. You can look at Ohio, but you can't see Kentucky or you can't see West Virginia, some of the bordering states. So eventually, it'd be great if we could get a national thing. But when you look at that, most of our patients are being very honest with us, but you'll find a handful that will be doctor shopping. You'll find we found one person who had wanted to uh, be in a program, and it turned out he had been going to six different providers, none of whom knew about the other provider, and used six different pharmacies and used his insurance only once, paid for the rest in cash. And so and it is a very, very profitable business for a lot of the people as well. And if you look at the sales price, again, it goes for about a dollar a milligram, say for example, oxycodone. So a dollar milligram, if you can get a twenty or forty milligram pill, you can get a bottle of a hundred, it quickly adds up to a huge amount of money. And as the economy has gotten worse in the last few years, I don't know if that's a factor as well or not. If you have one prescription for every two people, it's it's widely available. And then people trade them at parties. Most people in the school surveys feel they can get it pretty easily. It's an amazing statistic that so many prescriptions are written. It brings us into, in terms of managing it, it's, it's a medical, it's a psychiatric, it's a legal, it's an economic, it's a political problem. It's, it's like a, a universal problem in so many ways. It is. Well, I think the first part is to understand the extent of the problem. And to that degree, I would say that Florida has great data that you can look at. And the data that you have from the medical examiners, each year the Department of Law Enforcement in Florida works together to tally the data from the Florida medical examiners. And they've just recently released a 2009 report called Drugs Identified in Deceased Persons by Florida Medical Examiners. That came out in June 2010. And in that report, it breaks it down actually by county. And you can see that in total occurrences, ethyl alcohol, not surprisingly, was near the top of all these people who die with drugs in their system. Actually, over 500 cases, that was felt to be a contributing cause to the death. There were a few deaths by amphetamines, for example, 22 from amphetamine and 17 from methamphetamine. But then you start seeing this huge jump all the way up to 1,099 deaths just in the state of Florida where benzodiazepines were felt to be a contributing cause to deaths, including Alprazolam at 822 deaths. What's striking when you look at it, we think as psychiatrists frequently, benzodiazepines are relatively safe, and they are. Out of that 822 cases, only nine was it when benzos were used by themselves. It's when they were used in combination, and this is what happens. People who are diverting it, a lot of really aren't patients of anybody in particular. Uh, they may get it from a friend. They may buy it on the street. 
can be it's usually diverted. But when they mix them together, then it becomes lethal in many cases. So again, 822 people out present with self be a cause of death in Florida in 2009, but only nine of those was when it by itself. Azepam, the other ones are there too, and yet we, we use these drugs and they're very effective for treating anxiety and most of the time they're fine, but if you add them together, you get more respiratory depression. But when you look in Florida at the opiates, that appears to be where the increase and deaths are coming from. And you can pretty much track the increase in prescribing of opiates around the country over the last decade or so, and it for the most part tracks along with the increase in death rates from unintentional poisonings. Now, they, we've always had them, but the rates have gone up as these prescriptions have gone up. So in Florida, in 2009, 1,185 people died in Florida from unintentional poisonings or poisoning deaths of other types, sometimes suicides too, where oxycodone was felt to be a cause of death. And then you have methadone. 720 people died in Florida from methadone-related overdoses. 720, and 265 from hydrocodone, 122 from fentanyl. These are really, really large numbers. Now, to put that in perspective, heroin, which in my mind until I started looking to say more carefully, I would have assumed would have been higher, there were only 95 deaths for all of Florida. Almost 11 times as many people died from oxycodone-related overdoses in Florida than heroin overdoses. With methadone, a lot of providers forget it has a 90-hour half-life. So the pain relief may only last 6-12 hours. Patients or people who are taking this medication to get relief or feel high may take it, feel nothing after 6-12 hours, take more, take more. But with this 90-hour half-life, it takes five half-lives to reach a steady state. And then it's too late, especially if you're taking a benzo or something with it. And then you end up with increased rates of this respiratory depression. You know, some people will apply too many patches of the fentanyl. You know, it's designed to be used for people who are in chronic pain, have been on chronic dosing for opiates for a while. But a lot of people, especially when it's diverted or misused, will start off at a higher dose. They'll put on two patches if they don't feel anything right away, or they'll put on three, or they'll just use a higher dose and it's too late. Tramadol, there were about 71 deaths for the state of Florida. Just to put in perspective, in the whole state of Florida, there was nobody they felt died from cannabis abuse, and there were 529 who died from cocaine. So clearly, we're seeing this trend all over the country. Far more people dying from opiate-related deaths than cocaine or you know the heroin. It is truly a national problem. Florida is not unique in that sense, but part, I think, because of this lack of prescription drug monitoring program, the death rates appear to be highest in middle-aged people. There's certainly some who die in their teenage years, young adult years, but it really begins to peak in the 30s and 40s and 50s and then drop down some. And for a while, males led the pack, but women are catching up. In some states, women have actually passed men as far as dying from these unintentional poisoning deaths. It speaks so much to the old-fashioned, ever-so-important notion that a doctor and a patient have to work together very closely. The doctor has to know his patients, he has to monitor his patients, and the patients have to be honest. If it's just a quick little medication visit or going into one of these clinics, most of them, I I don't want to judge them all, but this is a very serious use of a very powerful and potentially effective medication, but if it's not done properly, it's um, dangerous. When you talk to young people, when I talk to patients, I ask them about their drug use, what kind of exposure, how easy is it to get drugs, and most of the people are quite honest. 
they'll tell you what's going on. When you listen to stories like from the younger people, the high school, college age kids, they have parties where they're put out kind of like you'd have an offering of Coca-Cola or Diet Coke or Pepsi or Sprite. They'll have pills out that everybody brings from their parents or grandparents' medicine cabinets. The other thing that happens and leads to a lot of these deaths as well is they don't just swallow the pills. So, for example, a lot of times with the hydrocodone, they will snort them, and that increases the potency and makes them obviously much riskier. And then when they do that, then they want to feel calmer at a certain point, so then they'll mix in a benzodiazepine to feel calmer. Then you get the respiratory depression, frequently death. Now, sometimes with the heroin, it'll be mixed with other stuff. It'll be dirty, so they'll add some fentanyl to the heroin to increase the likelihood of having a regular customer. And that's the other thing that happens. There's just so much money involved in this trade that it's an industry in and of itself now. There was a case in Wichita that just was tried in the summer. I don't know what the final sentencing was, but it was one clinic where they had, if I remember correctly, around 68 deaths of patients in that one clinic from unintentional overdoses and poisonings in just a few years, 68. They actually convicted the doctor and the nurse, who was the wife of the doctor, who ran the clinic. One other point that they talked about in that case, that also seems to be true nationally, is that in a lot of states, Medicaid raises the likelihood of problems as well. And we're not sure if that's related to the chronicity of the disorders of the people that are eligible for Medicaid, not understanding medication, but there was one medical morbidity weekly report that the CDC issued in relation to that. And there was a subset of patients who were thought to be diverting and doctor shopping, and they watched them very carefully. In that group, the relative risk of dying in the current time period in the future was around 92 times higher, 92 times higher. And just overall, you have to be more careful. But any population, unfortunately, when you look at this, it's all levels of society, from the poorest to the wealthiest. Really, I think is key here, is, as you mentioned earlier, Abby, is to pay attention to your patients. You can trust them, but at the same time, it never hurts. Find out where they're filling your prescriptions, call the drugstore, and see what they're really getting from other people. Does it match up with what they're telling you? When the prescription drug monitoring program comes into effect in Florida and elsewhere around the country, it's a fantastic resource. It's one we need to take advantage of more. Sometimes it's accidental. They just forget. People are on, the older people, maybe on six, eight, ten drugs. We need to identify the people who are doctor shopping. We need to identify those who are abusing and dependent so they can get appropriate treatment. And certainly it's critical to realize that if you have a psychiatric problem, if you do experience pain, you may require, at least the studies show, people with those disorders end up on higher doses of the pain meds and sometimes for a longer time. And so then it becomes more complicated and they frequently, again, will have anxiety disorders things else. So again, anything you can do to help get people in treatment when the prescription drug monitoring program comes into effect, it should be used, again, to help guide people to the appropriate place. Absolutely. 
absolutely. It is manageable, but we really do need to address the problem that you're so articulately identifying. Richard Weisler is on the clinical staffs of psychiatry at Duke University School of Medicine and also at the North Carolina School of Medicine in Chapel Hill. He also has a private practice, but as you've heard, he is now very much interested in working and pulling together ideas, notions, observations, and the like, dealing with a social epidemic that really needs to be addressed. Dr. Weisler, thank you so much for being with us. Well, thank you, Abby, for having me, and I certainly uh, encourage doctors in Florida and elsewhere around the country to pay attention to this epidemic, and together, working with the patients, pharmacists, and you know, law enforcement will be involved, too. Not so much that we have to direct them to that, but I think they have a key role as well in terms of tracking down the people who are doing the diversion part. Absolutely. So that uh, we can minimize availability. And one other thing is there's a take-back program in a lot of states where having such programs where you, people can bring back in their medication the old stuff, because people tend not to throw the stuff away. If you may have pain in the future, drop them off and dispose of them properly instead of leaving them in your medicine cabinet. Thank you so much. And thank you so very much, too, sir.